This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a special guest on the podcast. Her name is Sarah Verardo. So I don't ever do this, but I'm just going to straight read her bio to you guys to give you some context on her because you know sometimes it's easy to just list, oh, here are the books they've written, here's the jobs they've had. But I actually want to read this to you, so I'm just going to read it here. Sarah Verardo is a national advocate for wounded veterans and their caregivers. Her husband, Sergeant Michael Verardo, was catastrophically wounded in Afghanistan in 2010 in two separate IED attacks that took his left leg, much of his left arm, and left him with a polytraumatic con- with many polytraumatic conditions that have required more than 100 surgeries and years of speech, visual, physical, and occupational therapies. Starting as a volunteer with the Independence Fund, Sarah's steadfast devotion, experience, and drive led her... Uh, led her selection as the organization's first chief executive officer. Sarah is at the forefront of Afghan Afghan ally inclusion within the veteran community. Beginning in 2015, Sarah began working closely with the Afghan government to honor and celebrate the sacrifices made by veterans in both nations. Establishing regular events at the U.S.-based Afghan embassy, Sarah facilitated key partnerships that allowed American combat veterans, their Afghan partners, Gold Star families, and veteran caregivers the opportunity to find solace on Afghan soil in the the United States. The Independence Fund followed suit and welcomed Afghan combat interpreters to join its Operation Resiliency Retreats, which rely on the bonds of brotherhood to establish mental and emotional wholeness while preventing veteran suicide, beginning in 2019. Combat interpreters are welcomed into the reunion retreat to provide the same camaraderie. Compelled by the federal administration's move to withdraw troops from Afghanistan in the spring of 2021, Verardo kickstarted an effort in July to open the Independence Fund's programs criteria to all special immigrant visa recipients living in the U.S. Because of this advocacy, TIF was the first national VSO to include combat interpreters in veteran programming. As the withdrawal escalated, Verardo created the Allies program at TIF, offering SIV holders financial assistance and all Afghans navigation of available resources. In a move that was once vital and inspiring, the August 2021 collapse of the Afghanistan of Afghanistan led Verardo and three others to co-found direct response rescue and aid organization Save Our Allies. Since Save Our Allies or SOA has evacuated more than 17,000 U.S. citizens, SIV holders, and wartime allies from the country, and assisted in medical and humanitarian relief efforts in Ukraine, her groundbreaking leadership within two separate organizations has granted her a unique and powerful look at the needs of veteran and ally networks, and given her the opportunity to steward resources and support where and when they are crucially needed. So. Guys, I really appreciated a conversation like this because this is a conversation with a friend. This is a person that I became fast friends with, and we kind of get into that in the show, kind of how we met and those different things. But the thing that's very important about this interview today is we were able to walk through what she was doing prior to the fallout and you know the pullout from Afghanistan, and then what she was able to do immediately. And so something I want you to keep in mind as you're going through this episode today is I want you to think about, would I have been ready to do X, Y, and Z? Because what her and her team was able to pull off, again, about 12,000 people were rescued from Afghanistan in a little bit over a week, okay? Would they have been ready to do that had they not been making the right preparations before that time period, the right training, the right relationships, and just expand out from there? 
Because we get into all that in this episode. We get into, you know, where she was when the fall of Afghanistan was happening, what she went and did immediately, how she was able to coordinate all of these evacuations, how we were able to vet these people, where these people ended up, all these refugees. And then we get into a lot of other stuff towards the end. There's some stories here that are just absolutely incredible. So I'll kind of leave that for her. But before we get into that, I do want to make sure that we acknowledge today's sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Casey Cattle Company. Guys, we love this company. They are the only meat delivery subscription service that is U.S. military veteran owned us military veteran operated and all of their beef chicken and pork products are produced here in the good old united states of america that's casey cattle company so they specialize in wagyu beef but guys they make so many great things they do wagyu steaks wagyu roast pasture raised chicken pasture raised berkshire pork wagyu bacon cheeseburger bratwurst other bratwurst they've got their world famous hot dogs that actually tastes like a tube steak guys this is an incredible company we have the founder and CEO Patrick on the show to talk about that. You know, you can go back and listen to that episode, but guys, we want to make sure that you support these people that support us. We want to make sure that you have the opportunity to try their products. So go to kccattlecompany.com. That's kccattlecompany.com. Use the promo code Kyle to get 15% off your order. Again, that promo code is just my first name, Kyle. That's K-Y-L-E for 15% off your order at kccattlecompany.com. So guys, I really enjoyed my time with Sarah Verardo, but without further ado, let's get into it. Sarah Verardo, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Okay, I got to start out with a two-part first question, just so the audience can kind of get used to you a little bit. Number one, why do you pretend like you don't like doing interviews? And number two, why are you so mean to everybody? Come on, help me. Gosh, oh my gosh. So I've done a lot of interviews. And then the problem is, you know, um, I like being behind the scenes now. I feel like as I get a little older, I just turn the big three eight. I like being the behind the scenes person. Um, and why am I so mean? I'm not yeah. so mean. I heard cats all day. Like literally, sometimes it feels like I'm hurting spiders, but cats, spiders, um, it's a lot. I don't know if I'm a cat or a spider, but I do remember that this happened. So this is why you're so mean, Sarah, because I'm sitting at home, you know, we've got a two-year-old and then we've got like a three-week-old and you, you're like, hey, have I told you about the excuse for whatever you're going to say? You're kind of no. teeing it up. No, no, no. I'm just giving, I'm just giving the background, just giving the background here. And so you're like, Hey, uh, I don't think I've told you about this, but we got this event in DC. Uh, Tim would like to have you out there. We'd love to have you out there to come to this thing. And I gave you the same response. I would have given somebody that would have asked me, Hey, you want to go grab a drink? Hey, do you want to come outside and high five me and then run right back in? I was like, Oh, you know, we just had a kid. Everything's crazy right now. Ha ha. We'll go whatever. And you go, no, Kyle. Um, you're, you're coming to Washington, DC. This is a very unique opportunity. Make it happen. And I was just like, people don't talk to me that way, Sarah, where do you get off talking to me that way? I'm a grown man. Are you so glad you came though? That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is what happened initially. We can get to me being happy about showing up later, but why'd you have to be so mean about it? I mean, sometimes I just got to get you to the end result. You know, I'm glad you were there. We had a blast with you. You were in demand to come and look, you did it. I did it. Yeah. uh, You forced me to buy a tuxedo and all the different things, but there was something I wasn't aware of until a couple of days ago. So this is, this is black tie event library of Congress. I mean, this is a a well-to-do big deal type of an event and you looked great. You were all done up and everything, but apparently what you were wearing was not actually a dress. This is something that like you had to get DoorDash to you. This, this somehow missed me this entire story. What the heck happened with your dress? I forgot to bring my dress. And here's the thing though, is, you know, yes, I get it. I'm a girl. Who doesn't want to look nice? But for me at these things, what I look like is the least important thing of what's going on. So I'm like, okay, Tim's ready to go. Nick's ready to go. We've got all these senators, Congress, uh, all these VIPs coming. 
oh shoot, I didn't have a dress. And so I went on DoorDash and I found a bathing suit cover up on Target and had it sent to me. Um, and hey, it worked. No one knew, right? I well, mean, I think one knew, but. No, and they would never say anything, but my goodness, I mean, just keep that in mind for later. Like you've always got that in your back pocket because you had all these people that probably spent thousands of dollars on what they wore that day. And it's just like, bro, just go to Target. You're good to go. Act like you're going to the beach. Right. Um, That's so one thing that's interesting about you is, you know, when, when I explained to my wife who I was talking to on the phone, who was being so angry when I was explaining to people like, you know, kind of where I was going, what I was doing, you're a bit of a mystery wrapped in an enigma. Like, I don't know exactly what you do, which I've, I've kind of been there before. I've worked at different places where they're like, what do you do? Because you have your hands in so many different things. So if you were right. to encapsulate it for our audience, what do you do? I mean, first and foremost, I'm a very proud mother. I've got three little girls and that's the most important thing I do. Right. Uh, but what do I do for work, which also is just such a joy of my life is, um, you know, I run the Independence Fund. I'm a founder of Save Our Allies and I'm just a strong advocate for freedom, our military, our veteran and defense communities and our wartime allies. Kind of wrap that all up in one and um, love communication, business development and just getting the right people together towards a good right. solution. Well, and I will say this, I'll just kind of affirm you to your face because uh, I've been saying nice things about you behind your back. So I might as well do it to your face. Now, one thing that was apparent, you know, is I like to kind of watch people work the room, like whenever I'm at places, cause I'm a room worker, like, Hey, you know, maybe I can connect this dot for this person, that type of a thing. And you seem to have a deep level of respect, not only for the people that, that work for you, um, or they, they seem to respect you a lot, but then also all the other people seem genuinely happy to see you when you would walk up and talk to them. So that's something that comes from years and years and years of investing in people, not screwing people over because you can very easily work a room. And if you're in commission sales, maybe sell a few things here or there and then be a pariah and no one ever want to be around you. So just wanted to affirm you in that way. So obviously you've got a great reputation, but uh, one thing that you did mention is you, you support a lot of military type things, but that hits very, very close to home uh, for you specifically for you and your husband. So talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, his experience in the military, but then kind of, you know, the, the unfortunate circumstances that befell him that kind of like led to this domino effect of some of the stuff you're doing today. So we're going right for the hard stuff. I see. We're going Perfect. right for the hard stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll go, we'll like back into all the horrible things happening overseas. We'll start with this though. Can we go back to the DoorDash dress? Cause that felt a little easier. Too. It was a lot easier, but you know what? You make me uncomfortable all the time and you like oh, talk yeah. to me like no one talks to you. So I'm just going to make, this is my turn. I'm putting the screws in. Let's go. All right. All right. So, you know, my husband, Mike, we met in high school in Rhode Island. We were in a very small high school boarding school there. And we were there when the towers fell on 9-11. And he made a high school pact, which most high school pacts, of course, are just very dumb ideas. This was a really noble one. Um, they were going to enlist in the military. And Mike ended up having a pre-existing condition, which delayed his ability to enlist. And what is just so incredible about that is when you you know, hear what happened to him. He went through several painful surgeries just so that he could join. He, he was so desperate to serve. Um, he enlisted, he served, he wanted to be with the best of the best. He wanted to be in the 82nd Airborne. And eventually that, that wish came true. And they conducted combat operations in Southern Afghanistan. They deployed in August of 2009. He was an infantryman. It was, you know, he was wearing our nation's uniform, wearing that coveted 82nd Airborne patch, life could not be more meaningful for him. And it was a very difficult deployment that was met with an enemy that was largely invisible, improvised explosive devices. And 
you know, as, as we have um, unpacked that deployment and, you know, I'm still unpacking what the terrorists sent home with my husband 12 years later now, um, it, it was something that I, I just, I wouldn't, that experience, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Um, they had a high casualty rate. Um, his unit, Bravo Company, he loves those guys. Um, you know, they came home with a 65% purple heart rate. Um, they sent 24 men home as casualties. It was just, there was so much loss. And Mike was wounded the first time on April 10th, um, 2010. And he requested to go back to duty. Uh, one of his buddies had been killed the following day. He was given the choice, you know, go back to the U.S. and heal or go back with the unit. And they were down so many men already. And he wanted to go back out. And on his very first foot patrol, uh, just two weeks later to the day, he was the eighth guy going over a wall. And it was an old Russian landmine that the Taliban had connected to two 15-gallon jugs of homemade high explosives. Um, boom, right? It was it was definitely game over. But at that time, um, you know, he jumped so many hurdles. He was called in as expected dead on arrival. His left leg was blown off. His left arm was blown off or kind of looked like it was ripped open by a shark, what was left of it. Um, he was burned over about 30% of his body. He re required a field blood transfusion to be kept alive. I mean, it was just, um, he was so very catastrophically wounded. But the first hurdle he jumped, Kyle, was he was not dead on arrival. And mm -hmm. and that just felt like, okay, you know, the hits are going to keep coming. Um, this is really hard, but he's stronger. So the interesting thing about that, and we won't belabor that anymore because that's obviously very personal. We'll, we'll kind of stick to the stuff that, you know, you would at least put on social, but here we are all these years later, lots of surgeries for him, lots of recovery, lots of transitions, but life goes on for the Verardo household. Life goes on for the kids and, and you know, that those types of things happen. The question I have is about resilience because we live in a culture that is, well, you know, we have a victimhood culture, but there are still parts of culture that are obsessed with strength, with feats of strength, or when people overcoming the odds are doing those things. But I don't really care about strength as much. And I've talked about this a lot than I care about resilience because no matter what, you know, whether you're just aging or whether you suffer a catastrophic injury, you're not going to be as strong as you were at the, your strongest point. You will always diminish, but it's your resilience. It's your ability to bounce back, not just as the person going through the recovery, but as the, the greater family that is supporting that recovery. So talk to me a little bit about that because frankly, I get frustrated when I get a little injury and then go to jujitsu, right? And I'm like, oh, I wish I could do the thing that I'm used to. And it's like, it's not even real. Like this isn't real pain. This isn't real resilience. So talk to me about, you know, the real version of it. Well, you know, the thing is, is like everything. And it, it sounds so ignorant to say now that when Mike went to war, he thought he was going to war and coming home or going to war and not coming home. And I think some of the details that I shared are probably very hard for some people to understand. But, you know, and they're certainly hard for me to say. I'll never stop sharing them, though, because that is what the cost is that we pay as a nation to be a nation of freedom. And we are extraordinarily lucky that we have men and women still raising their hand and saying, send me. Mm. Um, and of course we'll touch on send me, but mm. we have men and women who are saying, I will go into harm's way. I love my country as imperfect as it may be. It is the best country in the world and it is so worth defending. Um, and that resiliency that is just built into these warfighters, I'm so inspired by it, but our journey, I mean, we didn't have our children until post-injury. And so when people, 
Um, and since you know, you shared your audience is mostly male, um, you know, some may get a kick out of this. But in our early years, you know, I think I was pregnant from like 2013 to 2017. We had three babies in three years. And, um, you know, Mike's on a prosthetic and we'd be out and like sometimes the older vets would come up to him and be like, well, guess you're glad everything wasn't blown off. <laughs> and um, <laughs> like, oh, my goodness, who says that? But right is that kind of um, that brotherhood joking vet culture. And uh, and now when people meet us, because he has he's had 120 major surgeries, um, he's been under anesthesia probably around 200 times because in the early days, and they do know better now than they did in 2010. But um, in the early days, they would have to put him under anesthesia every 24 hours to change his bandages. And that much anesthesia and what it does to a person, there's no population to study because it is a handful of people that have had that much anesthesia or that many surgeries post-catastrophic combat injury. But our life has changed. And when people meet us now, sometimes, you know, they say things like, oh, um, you know, did you have your children via IVF? Or did you, you know, people, people love to ask questions. And I say like, we had, we had a pretty normal life with prosthetics and wheelchairs and medical stays. We had a really normal life and God had such a plan for us and that we had to grow our family and quickly. And I didn't know why at the time, but of course um, that wouldn't be possible today. And so, you know, the um, resiliency that's required, I just, it's not a choice, right? Like I look at my husband and I thought he has to be relieved of duty. He has fought so hard. He has fought longer and harder than should be fair or any one person should have to fight. And it's my turn to say, Mike, I've got this. And I will, you know, carry that for our family and our daughters. There's, it's not, there's no other choice, but just digging in and doing it. And I think, I really appreciate that word because again, whenever you're not going through the crap, you have to understand that you're about to at some point. That could be today. It could be, you know, a million years from, or 50 years from now or something like that, Like, but it's coming for you. And you're putting in the reps now. So for those of you guys out there that aren't going through something hard right now, put in those resilience reps right now because you're making deposits in the right bank account because you may need to start, you know, taking some money out at some point to deal with the stuff that's befalling you. But I think all this kind of comes to a head and it comes to August of 2021. Uh, uh, you have a very unique relationship with Afghanistan. So does your husband. But here you were, just like the rest of us, watching Afghanistan fall to the Taliban and like clockwork, like it was the easiest thing, almost like it was planned. So I, I guess when when you're seeing this happening or where, where you're seeing the reports or watching on the news or whatever, where are you, what are you doing when, when all this started to happen? Well, Kyle, I've never, ever shared this part publicly. I think I've told a few friends this because um, I've seen a, a lot of really hard and sad things, of course, but probably one of the mo the darkest days of my life was telling my husband that Afghanistan collapsed. Yeah. And um, it, it was just awful. So, you know, you're a great friend. We've, we've talked through some of this. Um, you know, Mike now does an executive function at an adult level. His TBI has been, uh, you know, substantially more difficult. And some of the skills that he has lost, he requires an adult to do what's called his ADLs, his activities of daily living, and his IADLs, which are his independent activities of daily living. And really what that means is that he can, his ADL that he can perform himself is he can feed himself still, which is great. Uh, but an, an adult has to, you know, cut, prepare, safely cook the food, so his brain injury, he has a severe traumatic brain injury that has absolutely gotten worse with time. 
and he doesn't process things the way that he's 37, that an adult of his age would. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, you know, I've, I've done a lot of neuropsych testing with him and I understand the age level that he processes that it's not something obviously I would share out of respect for him. But when Afghanistan collapsed, I was in our state's capital. I had been meeting with government officials and I came out and just the number of phone calls I had of pure devastation from veterans that were struggling so much to make sense with what they consider to be their own Vietnam. It just gutting. And I called uh, my nanny who was with my kids and I called Mike's nurse and I said, you know, he doesn't use his phone a lot, but I also know like his buddies might try to call him. I I need to explain this to him. Mm. I need to be the one to explain this to him. And so I um I got home as quickly as I as I could and I told him I told him that I'd tell him something very sad. And um I told him that Afghanistan had fallen. I told him that Kandahar had fallen, which Kandahar is where um you know he was wounded. It was where his buddies were processed through that were killed. Um and he he was so sad and he kind of just was snuggling his dog, Bravo, named for Bravo Company. And he he just told me he felt so badly for the people that were still there. Didn't say much. And I left the room and um yeah, I mean, a few minutes later, I, I heard just like absolute wailing. And um it was pretty awful. It was pretty awful. And I realized in that moment, he could not do what he wanted to do, but I could. Mm. And so I had to, you know, the the greatest honor of my life after, you know, being a mother to my three daughters is completing my husband's mission, honoring his mission, honoring his time in uniform and taking care of him. And I realized like, this is an extension of that. I, I have a the ability to help people. And I've always believed if you can help someone, you absolutely should help them no matter what it takes and what at whatever personal expense, like you just, you, you help someone if you can, this is a life and death situation. And so we started just getting organized. Um, Nick Paul Machano, one of my best friends, he said to me, Chad is trying to get his interpreter out, call Chad, you know, maybe you can add a couple people. And then I said to Chad, Chad, how can I help you get organized with this because I'm always trying to, you know, put some order to things. And he said, I just, there's too many names coming through. And so I said, give them to me. I'm going to vet them. Um, We'll kind of set up an operation center that helps us. This all was in the span of a few hours, but like Mm -hmm. helps us really filter who's coming through. Why are these legitimate requests? And then I'm going to kick down every single door of any person of power that I know, and I am going to compel them to do the right thing. And um, I was unhinged at that point, Kyle. Like that's the only word I can really use for it, but I was so devastated. I was watching this White House, um, and that's not even to be political, but I was watching this White House just absolutely light on fire 20 years, 20 years, forget the money, forget everything else, 20 years of sacrifice. And for the first time in my life, I was having to answer questions that I didn't know how to answer of, was it worth it? And Mm. what I would say for my husband all day long, every day, it was worth it. He would do it again in a heartbeat. For me, you know, it doesn't really, how I feel about it, 
it's the honor of my life to take care of him, but I know it was worth it for him. But for my daughters that I have to explain to them now that they're living with the aftermath of a war that not only did they not sign up for, but that ended in the most horrific way possible with a total abandonment of our wartime allies, a disgrace to our active military, you know, just a stain on our veteran community. How could anyone reconcile that? How could the president, you know, and again, I'm not trying to get political, Kyle, but how, 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 um, how could anybody sleep? Well, it's okay to get political. I got political quite a bit because right after the only thing that I could do was to talk to people on this show. And so I had people come back on the show, people that served in Afghanistan, people that lost loved ones, you know, gold star widows. I, I talked to these people, did like 10, 15 minute, you know, long little interviews, just like help us make sense of this. But then I also wanted them to get the message out to the veterans out there right now that buried buddies that are, you know, still dealing with the, the mental and physical scars of what they did overseas and the stuff that they've seen and everything else. And how are they able to put that through this new room? rubric of this just abysmal leadership, if you can even call that from, from the Biden White House and those types of things. But uh, we could spend most most of the day in, and still have a lot of time left over just talking about some of the nonsense that's going on in the White House. But let's kind of go back to to where you start getting in there. So it started with Chad Robichaud. That was the Chad you were talking about. And so, you know, he's trying to get his interpreter Aziz out. We're going to have Chad on uh, next year because he wrote an entire book about that. So we'll leave that story for, for Chad and Aziz. But then that expanded out really quickly. And it includes Nick Palmashano and Tim Kennedy. And it, it went well beyond Aziz and his family almost immediately. And so let's go back to, to your role because you had a team that included, you know, Chad and Nick and Tim and, and Sean, who, who works with you and some other folks in the Middle East, right? You, you had them in Afghanistan and here you are stateside. So describe exactly what you were doing. What is your role in this entire process of getting people out of there? So my role was I called Sean Lee and, you know, you know, Sean Lee, Sean Lee is the behind the scenes guy in every good thing that we have done for a number of years. You know, if, if I know a lot of your followers and listeners are probably follow Tim Kennedy on Instagram, you know, you look at his pictures, you see Sean Lee meeting him in the airport to hand over gas masks a couple of months ago. Like that is Sean. He is the behind the scenes, good guy who gets things done. And we're so grateful for him. And he was my chief of staff for a long time. And I called him and I said, uh, is your passport good? And I need you to get on a plane pretty much immediately. And mm -hmm. he just said, great, which airport? I mean, that, that was it. Um, and I've been so blessed to surround myself with these men who are such doers. It never, ever would have occurred to me that they would say no. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like a really important point about who they are as people, that a lot of people talk about doing the right thing. Um, but the people that I asked to go, I knew they would say yes, and they would go do the right thing, despite whatever else was going on for them at that time. So uh, my girls and I, my three daughters, we had a family vacation planned, which, of course, there's no other parent to tap out to. It is me and my daughters. And so I thought, you know, what do I do? And so we we set out this beach vacation. They, um, I went to the beach and pool like twice during that entire time, I think 30 minutes each time because I had no service was burning through the phone um, and just calling DOD, calling State Department. I was being able to negotiate based on some of the partnerships and relationships I had to say, we have more planes than we can land. These planes are leaving empty. Help us clear this manifest. Help us get these people, the right people through the gates. Um, and we processed about 29,000 names. Um, it was just to talk about that urgency of that time to paint the picture, it was um, really just me kind of in a room 
on the phone 24 hours a day. I think starting like day four, we started doing like a 22 seven schedule with sleeping because Mm -hmm. we had to, but it was just all hands on deck. And for me, if you were someone that was not helping with Afghanistan, I would deal with you later. And that's really how I felt about it. I would just have to deal with that person later. And, you know, how could they live with themselves? How could they make these horrible choices? But the good people who had power and had the ability to help, um, they're the ones who should really be celebrated. So there you go again, being all humble and crap. And so I'm going to make you more uncomfortable. So here's what's happening, right? So, so let me explain it again. I, I talked about this in the intro and, and we'll get to the documentary here in a second. So you've got men on the ground, some that we can't even use their names that are actually going into Afghanistan that made these, these rat trails to basically get these, these people out of there. Right. But that's all being coordinated from a cell phone on the East coast of the United States. And it just so happened to be your cell phone, right? So uh, before we get into some of the more technical side of what you did, explain that disjointed, uh, the disjointedness, I guess, of your team, because your team's over there on the ground. And so to a degree, you could feel like here I am stateside, I'm kind of helpless, but were you just kind of too distracted to worry about the fact that you weren't physically there? Was it better that you were here that as opposed to being over there? Like, give me a little bit more on that. So I wanted to go, of course. I mean, like yeah. I, my first thing was let me go. And then I realized that's ridiculous. I mean, that's, that's me wanting to, to go in there and do probably nothing helpful. And in fact, just slow the team down. Mm. And the guys sort of even probably laughed at that concept. And I was much more effective here um, organizing, you know, I'm a, I'm the oldest of three girls, right? Like I know how to be bossy. I know how to get things done. I got you to DC, Kyle. Um, You know, and so it was really just kind of corralling all of these efforts and aligning them for good. And so, you know, you've got Chad with his incredible heart to serve and help and big ideas. You've got Nick, who's just known at being really good at solving problems and interfacing with people and difficult, you know, high tense environments. And you've got Tim, which who wouldn't want to have Tim Kennedy with them when you're, you know, trying to do a Neo, which Tim yells at me and tells me not to call it a Neo because it would only be a Neo if the Department of Defense was doing it. And instead, this White House gave it to the State Department. That's that's a different subject. Um, We had the right people and the right skill sets. And it was just kind of getting everybody to collaborate and move towards a place of action. So with that in mind, your background and the things you had done up to this moment set you up for this moment. Kind of like what I was saying earlier, you, you put a lot of deposits into the right bank account to take it out later. I don't mean literally, or probably I don't mean literally, but this was your game seven of the world series moment. And so you did, that's why I tell people all the time. It's like, you can't, you can't train enough because when God calls you to do something, you're either ready or you're not. There's no, Hey, can we just hit the pause button so I can spend 90 days getting my mind and my body right? No, it was, we have to act now. And so I guess what, what would you say set you up for that? Because there's no book that you can read to prepare you for a moment like this. It was just a lifetime of deposit. So talk to me a little bit about everything that set you up for that moment. Well, you know, my, my faith, first and foremost, absolutely my faith. If I didn't have faith and a close personal relationship with Jesus, I would have not survived. I wouldn't have survived my husband's injuries because I had to rely so heavily on knowing that, you know, God has a plan. He's going to use this as an instrument of good for other people. And like suffering is never wasted. So I I went into it with that mindset. And, and the second is I was just so focused on doing that. I just kept telling myself, I will deal with the sadness of this later. And I'm sure that's something that a therapist can have a field day with me about at some point sure. where 
I stay really busy and I try to stay really productive in helping people because, you know, maybe I can't affect any anything meaningful change-wise or recovery for my husband at this point. And I can't. And that is the hardest thing I've had to accept. And it took me a long time to accept it, but I can absolutely honor his service. I can honor the men he served with. I can be part of the commitment that he made to this country and to our wartime allies. And um, I mean, there were two, listen, it wasn't perfect. There were two times, this is so gross, but like there were two times I threw up in a trash can during this evac because um, what was happening was so graphic. You know, I'm on the sat phone, I'm on the comms and I'm, hearing and seeing it in live time with, with no consideration. And I'm so glad that they weren't trying to sugarcoat things to me, but there was no like, Ooh, this might upset Sarah. Um, it was really, really heavy. And what was shown on the news as Mm. devastating as that was, did not begin to accurately describe the picture, the heartbreak, the despair, and this, the absolute desperation on the ground. And the thing is, is when you think about the images that were showed on the news, that was enough to make you throw up in a trash can. But then whenever you hear about the stories from the people that were actually there, that Taliban were literally coming up to to the, the edge that the Marines were technically in charge of and executing people in front of the Marines, trying to get the Marines to engage. Because if they engage, now it's an international incident. Now it's open season on anybody wearing an American uniform, right? They didn't talk about that on CNN or Fox News or anything else. Also, the babies that were, were killed. These babies that were being, you know, pushed through, uh, these crowds of people hoping that they would end up in the arms of a Marine or something like that. Babies that were dead in the razor wire because they were thrown over a a fence. And, you know, the person on the other side of the fence or the wall couldn't see the wire there. That wasn't shown on the news because the news apparently said, all right, that's a little bit too macabre. It's like, but people falling from the sky because they're holding on to the landing gear of an airplane that, that passes muster. So, you know, we're kind of getting a little bit off subject. I do want to kind of come back to, so this is a question that a lot of people have asked. I've asked it myself. You know the answer. Obviously, don't give away anything that would be trade craft. You obviously know this more than I do. But how in the world do you, Sarah Verardo, vet these people? So we get names on a manifest or something like that. You get them from your team that's on the ground in Afghanistan. And then you are in the process of vetting this person, essentially trying to make sure that they don't have ties to any type of a terrorist organization or that they've never been arrested for this, that, or the other thing before you actually get them on a plane to get them out. How can you do that? Like what, what type of programs are involved with that? lot of government agencies. And okay. and that's where I would say, you know, doing the right thing, taking care of relationships, being someone who, you know, keeps their word. Um, I've been really blessed to develop a lot of pilot programs with federal agencies to work with good, strong partners and leaders. And I think that going off of, I was, I was willing to bet my, my life, my reputation, um, my future, my career on doing right by these people. And so I didn't really care about it that much at the time. I mean, Truly, I was like, whatever it takes, my, I can never work again after this, but I just want, I'm going to do the right thing, even if it means that I'm lighting relationships and bridges on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily, that's not what happened. But we we were co-located, I'll say, you know, with several government agencies. And so as we're receiving intake, we're able to do the vetting with these agencies and then they're clearing them. It's probably the best that, the way I can describe it. That, that's fair enough. We can leave it there. The next question that a lot of people ask, I think there was this tacit assumption. I don't know where people got this assumption was that all of these people that you saw on American aircraft were being relocated to the United States of America. Now, in some cases, that's, that's obviously what did happen, but where were, I guess, most of the, I guess, where did the refugees end up? 
really all over. I mean, there were a lot of countries that did a far better job than the U.S. did on saying, like, we will honor the commitment to our wartime allies. But, you know, some in Abu Dhabi, certainly, and they're still being processed, which is very frustrating for the people that are waiting there. You know, some Albania. um, I mean, there were a host of countries that were very, very generous and proactive in receiving these refugees um, that may be better suited for a country other than America or, you know, something that really it was it was so dependent on the situation, really, on each individual situation. Some of our combat interpreters are just living these thriving lives in America. They served with American infantry units for so long that, of course, they're they're very well versed in the culture here and that community um, and their families are acclimating wonderfully as well. That's great. I've, I've I've heard so many stories, even I know it's anecdotal, but I've heard so many stories of people that have just relocated and they're doing absolutely incredibly well. And just think about it. Like when you're really, really sick, this is a stupid example, but when you're like sick and the first day you feel better, your food tastes better. The air smells better. The birds are flying more beautifully than they ever have. Think about it for these people. Like they were afraid that the Taliban was going to come door to door and rape their children in front of them and then slit their throats and then gouge their eyes out. So that's the last thing that they would have ever seen before they themselves get their heads chopped off. And no, that's not me going into the hyperbolic mode. That's that's docile compared to some of the stuff that actually happened on the ground over there. But this was uh, something that Tim described in his book that he co-wrote with Nick. This is something that's described in, in the documentary Send Me that we'll talk about here in a, li- in a little bit. But of all the things that you could potentially be mad about, in this entire situation of Afghanistan, there's something that we can just colloquially now call the bus incident. So you can give us whatever details you want to give us on what actually happened with this bus incident. And then I've got some follow-up. So fire away. The bus incident. Um, Where to start? Because, you know, first I want to start by talking about, you know, who Tim Kennedy is as a person, who people think Tim is, who he actually is. Let's back up, Sarah. Let's start there because there's a lot of misconception about Tim, Tim, the fighter, Tim, the guy on Instagram. So let's set the record straight a little bit. Okay, so first of all, Tim is a good human. Like, Tim is a good person. Tim always does the right thing. Always. Um, You know, when no one's looking, when someone's looking, like, he's always the one that you're going to find making the right call. He's incredibly smart. He's strategic. Um, And I can also say he's really popular. He's easy to hate, right? And And that's what we certainly saw come out of this bus incident. Now, people have been overwhelmingly positive, too. But you know, this is this Tim details this in the book and it's in the documentary. But we, you know, our team bought seven buses and these people were vetted, they were cleared. We had American citizens on these buses, we had Christian orphans, we had very high risk populations that we were asked to move, including at times by government agencies. And so these were the right people on these buses. Um, a colonel of the 82nd Airborne, and remember, my husband served in the 82nd Airborne. I love the 82nd. I think it is really an iconic unit for many good, and I love the 82nd. The behavior that I saw that night come out of this one colonel, and it's very, I've never worn the uniform. I've never been in a combat zone. I'm trying very hard, even I was I was on the phone that night, to not make a judgment. You know, there's the fog of war. There's, what is this guy dealing with? What threats did he know was coming? Like taking all of that into account and not being someone who needs to judge, it's still that he made a horrible call. And so, uh, you know, Tim, it ticked him off that Tim Kennedy was there. And so he kicked Tim and these buses filled with American citizens and Christians and orphans off the base. Um, 
you know, he, we would later hear that it was a call from the State Department and not DOD, and that DOD was following an order from state, which again, I mean, why are we castrating, for lack of a better word, you know, our, our own military and, and just giving in and negotiating and, you know, being deferential to terrorists? I, I cannot reconcile that. Um, and, and so he said, this is not the Tim Kennedy show. And he kicked them out, and we never ever heard or made contact with those people again. Now, um, the colonel, he's still active duty. He's still at Fort Bragg. He's still in the 82nd. You know, I'm told by members of Congress and, you know, perhaps even within DOD that there's some open investigations. I sure hope so. I, I sure hope so. And if he's not judged here in this lifetime, you know, that's not on us, but I don't know. I don't know how he could make the call he did. That, that, a little sidebar. That's one thing that's comforting for people that do have faith in Christ is that we do know that there's ultimate judgment. So we don't have to sell our souls to make sure that judgment happens on this planet because we believe in cosmic justice. But beyond that, uh, obviously, had Tim not been on the team, maybe it was different. Maybe this was a big dick contest for this guy, and I was gonna, I'm gonna show Tim Kennedy who the real man, who the real fighter is. Maybe it was that type of thing. Maybe he was a fan of somebody that Tim Kennedy beat up. Maybe he was a big Michael Bisping fan, and then he just decided he was gonna show show yeah. the world how to do those types of things. Uh, it's heartbreaking that that you don't know what's happened to the people that were kicked off base, but you cannot assume that all those people are alive. You cannot assume that all those people have made it out uh, through other other means or those types of things. But here's the thing that I found interesting. And I know there's a good reason uh, for it. There has to be, but he was not named in Tim's book, nor was he named in the documentary. And I'm a name names guy, right? I'm not a subtlety type of person. I know there's probably a, a reason for that. And again, you, you already talked about, you set some bridges on fire, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you would reconstruct it from the ashes just to burn it down again. But why was this Colonel not named? Because he should be. The public needs to know who did this. So people know who he is. I mean, I, like I said, so, you know, you can listen to me again. He is a brigade commander in the 82nd. It doesn't take much on a Google search to figure out his name and plenty of people um, you know, our our good friends at Drinking Bros, like they're, you know, longtime Tim friends, they've named his name. Um, again, my understanding is he has a wife and he has children, and I'm not excusing that, but I have not worn the uniform. It is very hard for me to name his name because I don't know what was happening at that exact time. Um, I mean, I was on the phone at some point, I could hear it on the sat phone, but you know, and then in terms of not naming him, it was, I think there was a hope that you know, maybe there was an explanation as crazy as that sounds like maybe there was an explanation. Like, was this an order? Was he following an order or is he just a terrible human being? Or is he, um, you know, absolutely want to be, be able to say that like he won against Tim Kennedy. I don't know. And I, I could sit here and guess all day. Cause I certainly have my theories. We've heard from plenty of people, um, you know, that have been above and below him in the DOD chain. And, um, I can tell you that I have not heard anything positive, not anything positive. Um, I'll leave it at that, Kyle. You, I, could, you should, I could go. Yeah. I'm like a mom there when it comes to these guys, and you know, I really am. And um, no, I, what happened that night? Especially Tim volunteered. That's what people understand. Tim volunteered to go to Afghanistan. He left left several successful businesses mid launch. He left his company. Um, he gave up very lucrative business arrangements and speaking engagements to go to Afghanistan as a volunteer because he is so highly trained in these type of extraction 
exercises and 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 real experience that he has from his 20 years of military service. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I'll stop because I, I will be a mama bear. Hey, that, that's fine. Uh, I'm glad we were able to reveal that a little bit. And again, I guess that's that's good for all of us to realize not everybody that wears a uniform is created equal. Not everybody that wears a lab coat is created equal. You still have to look at these people and judge them individually, even though they did sign on the dotted line to serve this country. Uh, I think that, that that goes without saying. Now, I wasn't intending to ask about this because it seems a little bit inside baseball, but, but you brought it up a couple of times. The, the weirdest thing about this to people that really understand government bureaucracy is that this was something that should have been happening, the, the the withdrawal from Afghanistan or really any of this should have been under the Department of Defense, okay? But for for some reason, perhaps there is a good reason for it, this was being put under the State Department. And so not everybody really knows the, the differences. They just think, oh, that's the federal government. And then they just have a bunch of people that wear different hats. But that was very, very odd. I can't think of, of a really good, you know, uh, metaphor or something like that. But it's like, it made no sense to people that were actually paying attention was like, why is the state department in charge of this? So do you have any indications as to why that was? And and maybe give us a little bit of an idea what limited uh, you guys or anybody else that was trying to help on the ground because of that decision that was made. Well, I think when you look at Afghanistan and you look at the failures to our combat interpreters, and for those who don't understand just the absolute vital role that a, a liaison or interpreter plays in these wars, and it's not limited to Afghanistan, but they serve as a cultural liaison, of course, a language interpreter, but they embed with American troops. And with the Afghan SIV program, we have really four, if not seven presidential administrations that have failed these people. But um, so, so there's not, like, there's plenty of blame to go around. And at sure. my t- even at that time, my thought was like, we will, we'll deal with that later. Let's just get them out now, mm-hmm. take them all and, and, and figure it out later and not take them all to America, but get them all out. Those that worked for American troops, get them out, bring them to a third country and, you know, a lily pad location, process their paperwork. Um, I've heard a lot of different reasons, both from Congress, from government officials on why the State Department got it. I think this White House knew that um, they were going to double down on the failures of Afghanistan. You know, may we never forget, may we never forget that the day before the horrific bombing at H. Kaya, the White House press secretary called the Afghanistan evacuation, and I quote, an extraordinary success. How? Right. Like a, based on what metric? Like what metric would you use to gauge that? Right, right. So, um, you know, there were the the abandonment and the withdrawal of our of our of our bases. I mean, there were just so many things that that still don't make sense. And I think that, you know, I've said I don't want to make it political, but really to me, it's not political because you look at most of the country was united in the fact that this was mm-hmm. a botched withdrawal. Whether or not you thought, like, should we still be there? You know, should we not look at all of the places around the world that we still have a small military presence at, right? And mm-hmm. we have to fully leave Afghanistan. I mean, my personal opinion, of course, is no, because I really want to finish the mission. But even if you believe we should fully leave or we should have left, we didn't have to leave that way. And I think everyone, Democrats, Republicans, independents, everybody was united in that fact that the way it went down was completely avoidable. And so I think what we saw from this White House is wanting to just um, hope hope it went away. And I think you know, giving it to state and absolutely just cutting our military off at the knees. Imagine what these people are living with. And some of those units have reached out to me, Kyle. You know, I've heard from mothers and wives and 
unit members and um, the men and women that were over there having to play God at those gates and what yep. they've had to live with and then watching, you know, what was happening in front of them. And, um, you know, one of the times that I told you, I got so sick cause it was so horrible. I was on the phone with this young woman. Her husband was a combat interpreter with American special operations units for 10 years. And, you know, her dad had also worked with the Americans and I'm on the phone with her trying to get her to my guy at the gate. And, um, her dad is trampled to death. Um, and, and then they took his body and um, it, it was so horrific. Watch, imagine these military members having to watch that. I, it is the cruelest, it's inhumane. You constantly hear these stories of people that served in the global war on terror that come back. And what's weird about it is they don't talk about the physical injuries as much. They talk about those. They talk about what they've seen. Uh, I mean, going back to the story, you know, that Tim's told several times and he told it in the book where he threw, he lasered, you know, a, uh, a grenade into a building and it hit a bunch of civilians and children. Right. And, you know, he got hurt overseas. He bled, you know what I mean? But he doesn't talk about that. And it's not just because he's a tough guy. It's because that doesn't even register to him because those are wounds that heal. You may not even have a scar from where you were bleeding a little bit ago, but those are the things that absolutely stick with somebody. But you made a great point. And that's a point that a lot of people made is like, does it seem like we're in war in Korea, but we have a bunch of troops in Korea. Are we at war with Germany, but we have troops in Germany. We like literally it's, it's this univariate analysis that people do. They're like, well, I don't like war. So we should just bring all our troops out of there. And it's just like, don't you think it's a little bit more complicated than that? But the thing about that, Sarah is we're too distracted. We're Americans, right? Like we, we got to get to the next TikTok. Uh, we've got to get to our next fantasy football draft. We've, we've got to get to the next video game. We've got to focus on the next thing. And I said it at the time I recorded an episode with a gal that was on the ground in Afghanistan. She's a war correspondent, Holly McKay. As the Taliban's driving through her city, and if they had known that an American citizen was on the second floor of this particular area, she would have been very, very, very in massive amounts of trouble, right? For her own personal safety. And I remember saying it to her at the time, and she's like, you're absolutely right, unfortunately. I was like, well, Holly, two weeks from now, no one's going to be talking about this anymore. Because, you know, Trump will have said something in the media or, you know, Biden would have pooped in his pants in front of the Pope or something else would have happened. And we would have been like, oh, this this couple is breaking up and they're, they're a celebrity. So we need to focus on that. Talk to me a little bit about how that feels from your perspective, you know, dealing with what you deal with on a daily basis, right? Inside your own household, the work that you did to realize that the American consciousness just, boo just moved right on. We don't even think about the people starving to death in Afghanistan right now about the women that are being put under such unbelievable subjugation. Talk to me about that because you've lived it more than I have certainly. Well, you know, I think as Americans, we're a selfish population. Absolutely. But okay. So let's, so let's walk the dog on that a bit. What happened in Afghanistan, even if you don't care, which I, is so hard for me to reconcile, but let's say you don't care because, Oh, that's another country over there. Yeah. Okay. Let's say you feel that way. Right. How about the fact that the abandonment of our wartime allies, what does that say for us in future conflicts? How does that absolutely expose our own security? I mean, that is a threat to our homeland. That is a threat to our ability to have allied uh, cooperation with these interpreters that we will rely on in future conflicts. So if you're an American who feels like, what does this have to do with me? 
Well, pay attention because the way we left Afghanistan, what does that say about our priorities as a nation being safe, being free? It really is something that should terrify all of us. But, you know, the attention span, people move on from it. We saw a little bit of um, interest again around the one year anniversary and maybe some of the stories of those that uh, were fortunate, the very lucky few of the right people that were fortunate enough to be in the U.S. And Overall, you know, I live I live with the aftermath of radical Islamic terrorism in my home and no and no one wants to call it that because we don't no one wants the very worst parts of you know our life, our religion. There are there are bad parts and populations of nearly every community. And the Afghans that I know are they are patriotic, they love America, they've done so much to already be part of this country that they're not even citizens of yet. Um, they love freedom. They want that for their children. They want their daughters to be educated. Um, they are so thankful and excited to be here. And focusing on that, though, you know, their number one concern, it's not the fact that some of them are working three and four jobs to survive and you know have housing in the United States. Their concern are for their family members that are still stuck and the promises that our government has just completely forgotten about. So it's, you know, I live with it every day. And I say that because it's not something that I could, I don't want to move on from it, nor could I, you know, there is not a day that goes by. And this is why it's probably just, it's so intertwined, but there's not a day that goes by. There is not a soccer game or a parent teacher conference or even a family dinner that goes by that I do not see and feel a huge void. And, you know, side note, fathers are essential. Don't ever let anyone else say otherwise, because in this society, people really like to say that. Um, so I have this huge void. And why is why does that void exist? Because of what happened happened in Afghanistan. And so for people to move on just so carelessly, um, oh, it grinds my gears. Well, and even beyond that, Sarah, the thing that's interesting is, and I, I'm familiar with some you know, think of veterinarians. Like these are people that deal with, with death every day. They, they deal with sadness about people losing their animals, all those types of things, but they get a empathy fatigue. Like you can only be so empathetic. Like you literally can't walk around and function like, like a normal person. Uh, and just think about everything that's going wrong in the world, but to lose the consciousness. That's why every year around nine 11, I watch all the documentaries on Nat Geo and on discovery channel and all that. Cause I want to remember how mad that I was as a 10th grader watching people jump to their desks as opposed to being, you know, suffocated by the black smoke or being, you know, caught up in the inferno. I want to remember what that feels like, because if I had hadn't been in 10th grade and I'd been of age, you may have watched me march my butt down to, you know, to, to go say, Hey, we're, I'm going to go help make this right. Like a lot of people did, you know, like certainly your husband did, but one of the ways that we can help tell the story of these people and the things that they went through, but also the things that they continue to go through is to actually tell the story. And so that's something that y'all decided to do very early on. I don't know who was behind it. I know some of the people that worked on it because obviously I was out there with you all in DC and I got to see the behind the scenes, you know, before it was we even done, you know, the, the super pre director's cut or whatever, but y'all made a documentary about this process of getting these people out, starting with Chad and Aziz and, and trying to get his interpreter out all the way through the end. And it's called send me guys. It's in the show notes. If you haven't watched it yet, you can watch it on Amazon. Again, it'll be in the show notes. You should definitely go and check it out. But talk to me about that process because some people would just do this and then, you know, 
let it be in, a, in Tim's book or maybe someone else writes a book or maybe you do a little expose for, for some newspaper or something on YouTube. But no, y'all are like, no, we're, we're telling this story and we're going to tell it the right way. So why even do that? Well, so I didn't know we were doing a documentary. You know, Nick is a phenomenal storyteller. And I think that what comes naturally to him is that as he was on the ground, you know, he flew over with Tim and he was able to fly back with some of um, one of those early plane loads of people that we were rescuing and he saw firsthand. And so that's how his mind thinks of like, I need to show this to people one day. And I'm so grateful that he captured that because he just started thinking this is a story that is going to have to be told. Like we cannot let it be forgotten. The hardest part of these stories is that the the two gentlemen, for example, who rescued Aziz, we can never, ever share their names. I mean, may, maybe at some point, but yeah. right now we can't. And it is so hard because I just want to shout from the rooftops, like these brave Americans who people have no idea. There's so much wrong with our society. And there really is. There's just, there's so much wrong. But if you knew the people that are still willing to go so into harm's way, the the training they have, the patriotism they have, uh, it's so deep. They're so incredible. They are absolute rock stars. I wish we could shout their names from the rooftops because like they got Aziz and they've not received any, you know, quote unquote credit for it. Yeah. They absolutely should, but that's not why they do it. And um, telling that story was very difficult. You've watched it. You, you know me, it's very, it's very hard. I mean, I had to be kicking and screaming. They actually hid to film me one day because I didn't <laughs> want to be able Um but I'm glad, like, I am absolutely glad as hard as it is to watch that we'll have that as a snapshot in time to show what ordinary Americans can do. And for all of you guys out there that have young men, uh, you, you kind of talked about some of the things that are some of the messages that are sent on young men. Maybe we can do another podcast and talk about some of the cultural messages being sent to our young boys. But I know that there are some patriotic young boys right now that the LGBTQ uh, design on the Marine helmet isn't going to get them to, to want to join uh, the, the military. The uh, advertisement that's like, well, I have two mommies. Like that's probably not going to be the thing that gets them to join. These kids that have been told since elementary school that 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 desire to protect and provide and to compete is somehow toxic. You know, maybe that's going to steer them away from the military. But if you've got young boys that, that think that that might be something that they would want to do someday, show them this documentary. And that is not because of some misplaced glory that, Hey, maybe one day you can be a hero just like Tim Kennedy. That's not the thing about it is the thing about it is, is the guy sea spray, you know, the people that you can't even see, you can't even, you wouldn't see them. If you, if you walked up to him, bumped into him at Walmart, you would never know. It's because of guys like that, the names that only God knows and the names of the people that they saved. That's why these people go over there and do that. They don't think they're going to become a New York times bestselling author. They don't think they're going to be able to tell this story someday on the Joe Rogan experience. They just want to do it because it's what you said earlier about what Tim does. You just do the right thing. And I know that this statement that I'm about to make is going to make you uncomfortable, which is great. That's exactly why I'm saying it. But Sarah, the reality is, is that you coordinated the rescue of over 12,000 people in a little over a week and thousands more since then, just in Afghanistan. We'll get to Ukraine, but you did that. Yes. Your team helped. They were there. The people on the ground over there were doing the stuff that only they could do because of the training that they had. But God put you in a specific place for a specific time. And you said, yes, Lord. And you walked through. What does that feel like? Well, I, I appreciate that. But I also of all of everything that went on at that time, I was safe. I was in America. I had the easy job. It's very hard 
for me to imagine that someone would have the access and the relationships that I have and that they would not use them in that time. And perhaps, perhaps they wouldn't, you know, there was one person and I, and I'll never forget this because um, this person that I had really respected and, and worked closely with on a number of things had the power to help. And he said to me, you're so focused on Afghanistan. You're so focused on Afghanistan. You know, this is going on and that is going on. And, you know, you kind of got to get over it. You can't, you can't save them all. And who knows who they even are anyway. And I said, stop speaking right now because you are going to say something that is going to irreparably change my opinion of you. And, and you know, it has changed, of course. Um, yeah. You have the ability to help someone, you help someone. And uh, my daughter, who's now eight, you know, she calls it being the somebody because, you know, I, I am the only parent that they really have. And there I've had to miss a lot. And that's been it's been so tough. I, I really thought that, you know, maybe I'd be a stay at home mom. And I, you know, <laughs> the things you think when you're younger. Right. But for me, it's been tough missing things for my daughters. And of course, you know, I'll fly through the night to not miss a preschool party. Like I, I kind of am a little bit crazy with travel that way. But unfortunately I miss things once in a while and having these girls who say, but you know, mama, you're being the somebody. Um, if you wouldn't be the somebody and you have the ability to be, then I just think your whole life has to be reexamined. I, I can't, I don't think, I mean, I know I didn't do anything extraordinary, Kyle. And that's because I did what I would hope anyone with the kind of access that I had would do. Why else do you have the, you know, the ability to influence change, the ability to maybe utilize some power players? If you are not going to use it for good, why do you have it? Uh, Undaunted Life is here to equip men to push back darkness. And I know some men that are equipped that are unwilling to push back darkness. And whether it's in the, with their local school board or in their own household or within their own soul, there's a level of selfish narcissism that these people feel to where it's like, oh, do I really want to push my chips in? And I've, I've used this, this metaphor a lot. It's a lot of people, they will wake up one day in the war as it were, will be over. Their side will have lost and they will have realized that they never picked up their sword. They never put on their helmet. They never put on their armor. And then they woke up one day and it's like, oh, it's all over now. It's like, yeah. And you never got into the fray. And so for some people getting into the fray means that there's going to be bullets whizzing past their helmet. Other people, it means that they're going to be setting bridges on fire. And those bridges are, are relationships, not actual bridges. But speaking of bridges that are on fire, let's talk about you. Ukraine. So you go from save our allies, focusing on what was going on in Afghanistan. Then y'all make the obvious pivot to say, okay, the Russians, a nuclear power, Afghanistan's not a nuclear power. The Taliban's not a nuclear power, but the Russians, they're, they're invading Ukraine. They've caused war in Ukraine. That's still going on to this day. And y'all pivot your resources, not out of Afghanistan, but in addition to Afghanistan to what's going on in Ukraine. So, so tell me about that. Is that just kind of what happens now? If something crazy pops off in some random country, is that where save our allies is going to be from now on? Yes. Um, okay. you know, save our allies exist to serve Americans and allies and allies can be journalists or actual, you know, wartime allies people, vulnerable populations that are in contested war-torn areas. And we are 
rescuing them, providing aid. And we're such a fluid organization, but we are going to defeat terror. We're going to do the right thing, even if our government will not. And at times it's with the cooperation of our government. So my my very favorite thing in the nonprofit, non-government and government space that I get to work on are public-private partnerships. And we never saw a better public-private partnership then with Ukraine, we did a very, you know, high, you know, highly visible rescue of Fox correspondent Benjamin Hall. And mm-hmm. um, he's in the process of telling his story right now. And it's pretty incredible. I think, you know, stay tuned to see how he does that. But that public private partnership, having, again, take care of your relationships, people, because, you know, when you have these relationships to fall back on, and you need someone to maybe not like bend the rules in a bad way, but to, to know that you are an effective person who can get things done. It is in their best interest to, to meet you there and do it with you. It is a win all the way around. So um, you create such a different environment than Afghanistan, of course. Um, also have a lot of thoughts that, you know, people cared so deeply. You see the Ukraine flags on, you know, every block in America, um, why did we not have that level of support for our Afghan actual wartime allies? I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack there yeah. too. But so grateful for the work we're doing in Ukraine. You keep bringing up things that I want to go into the rabbit rabbit trail. That's why I wanted to do three hours. Okay, we're just yeah. right at one hour, and I know it's making you very uncomfortable. But but because I am a gracious guy, and because I am a nice guy, even though I look like this and I have this angry ginger soul. There is something that I like to do towards the end of my shows with some of my people that I interview that I know is going to make you uncomfortable, which is exactly why we're doing it. It's a segment called, what would you say to someone that said? So what I'm going to say, Sarah, is what would you say to someone that said, and then I'm going to fill in the blank. And in this is lightning round though, you get 30 seconds maximum to answer that question. And we're going to do a bunch of them, right? So this is just right off the top of your head. We don't have to think about who's going to potentially hear this and who am I going to make mad? No, it is all about the meat and potatoes answers. So what would you say to someone that said, are you ready for it? I'm ready. Let's go with number one. What would you say to someone that said, I hate America? Why are you here and what are you doing to make it better? It's a great question for them to ask themselves. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said the U S needs to stop trying to be the world police? We have an obligation to make our country not only safe and the best, but we're doing that by making sure that evil doesn't win. And we're not the world police. We're making sure that evil does not win and that evil does not come here. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said Joe Biden surely would not have pulled us out of Afghanistan unless he had a really good reason. I'd love to know what that really good reason is. And I think that he should have to start by telling that to people whose lives are forever impacted by that country. Well, you'd have to start by actually stringing together a uh, bunch of words into a sentence that is actually coherent. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said the U.S. is getting what she deserves for meddling in Middle Eastern affairs for so long? No, just total ignorance. I probably would just say that's so ignorant and stop speaking to that person. Yeah. It's kind of hard to ask a follow-up after something like that. All right. A few more here. What would you say to someone that said, support the troops? Do it with your actions, not just with your word. It's easy to attend a homecoming, show up. These families are living, the families are living with the aftermath of war long after their loved one leaves the battlefield, show up, be with them, welcome them to your communities. Another little sidebar, we just released an interview here recently with Sarah Wilkinson, who uh, is a gold star widow. Her husband uh, took his own life. He was a former Navy SEAL. Um, the The ministry to a family like that or the ministry to a family like ours, we, we lost a family member that was killed in the line of duty as a police officer here this year. 
whenever the the meal trains stop and whenever the people stop just dropping by and all those things, it could be six months, could be nine months, could be two years. That's when the ministry begins. It doesn't start the day after. That is when the ministry begins. So if you want to support your troops, it goes well beyond mowing someone's lawn one time. So there, we'll go back into it here. What would you say to somebody that said, soldiers are baby killers? Ignorant. No, move on. Yeah, that's a tough one. All right, just a couple more left and then we'll get you off the hook. What would you say? How lucky are they to live in a country where they can say that? I mean, <laughs> again, this is a basic belief of mine. I don't know because it's the Constitution. Um, so, yeah, how lucky are you that you can even say that? I'd want to I'd want to smack them, but moving on. <laughs> uh, yeah, you could just move on without having to go to jail. All right, just a couple more left. What would you say to someone that said war is never necessary? What a privileged life you've had and your privilege is showing. <laughs> your privilege is showing. All right, last question of the day. You made it all the way to this moment. What would you say to someone that said, you're not that bad at interviews, Sarah? Oh, this is so painful to me. But you're getting you to talk about these things, but it is, it's so painful to me. Yeah. I, I know it can feel painful. But that's why you have to have someone kind of hold your hand and walk you through it in that type of situation. And we're okay with going with the hard stuff from the very beginning. But I really appreciate everything that you've done, everything that you've done for me, you know, behind the scenes that I don't really want to talk about on air because that's between us. But you've done incredible work. You continue to do incredible work. I really appreciate you going into all that detail today, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Kyle, thank you. I love what you're doing. I think you are, um, you've got a great platform, a good engaged audience, and thank you for just being a voice of truth. Sarah Verardo, thank you for coming on a Daunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Sarah Verardo. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So don't forget to support the sponsor of today's show, KC Cattle Company. Go to kccattlecompany.com. That's kccattlecompany.com. Use the promo code Kyle to get 15% off your order. Again, that promo code is just my first name, Kyle. That's K-Y-L-E for 15% off your order at kccattlecompany.com. The links I've got for you today, I've got a link to the documentary that we talked about, Send Me. I've got a link to Save Our Allies website and also the website for the Independence Fund. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album, Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.